Thank you, and thank you for the honor of being here to join you and to open up God's Word today. I just wanted to say I'm really thankful um, to know Pastor Matt, and I've gotten to know him and be a friend over the last year or two, and uh, what a joy. He's a wonderful, uh, dear, dear brother, and so I'm really grateful to be able to be here with you. Well, let's start uh, with a question this morning. What can we be sure of in this world? What things can we count on? What's a, a safe bet? Well, Benjamin Franklin had an answer. In November 1789, at the age of 83, Franklin wrote a letter to a friend in France to update him on recent events in the United States, the Constitution's ratification the year before and the start of a new government. And this is what he wrote to his friend. He said, our, con- our new Constitution is now established. Everything seems to promise it will be durable, but in this world, nothing is certain but death and taxes. You've heard that quote before, I'm sure. Now, here was a man, Benjamin Franklin, in the waning years of his life. He was struggling at this time with chronic illness, with facing the certainty of death. This statement isn't just mere wit. This was his reality. He concluded this very same letter to his friend by reflecting on his own mortality. This is what he said. He said, my health continues much as it has been for some time, except that I grow thinner and weaker so that I cannot expect to hold out much longer. Franklin uh, died six months later after this letter, and his maxim proved true. Death is the undefeated champion. See, we're all faced, I think, with this same uncertainty or this reality, and, and we have to ask ourselves, what emotions does the certainty of death conjure up? What reactions are we faced with? Some of us might feel afraid. Uh, some want to maybe ignore it or imagine that it's still really far off in the future. Some of us may have felt, and I, I'm sure you have, I know I have, the, the grief and loss and pain that death causes. And in the face of this, we might wonder, does God know? Is he good? Does he care? Will he do something? See, in this world, death is the undefeated champion. Or we just celebrated communion. Or is it? See, I want to look at John 11 today. So open up with your Bibles uh, to John chapter 11, the Gospel of John. Um, I'm going to be reading the whole text here and helping us to see the story as it unfolds. But this chapter of the Gospel of John is the defining moment of this Gospel. Jesus here proves that in the face of the most terrible reality, which is death itself, Jesus has not met his match. He shows through the raising of Lazarus that he's not merely in a battle against the religious leaders of Jerusalem, but he is in a battle against death itself. You see, the the painful reality that death and loss causes the people in this passage, in this example, 
it causes them to ask the very same questions we do. Does God know? Is he good? Does he care? Is he going to do something about it? And we're going to see that Jesus answers all of those questions. And in this account, it's, it's the preview in John 11 of the coming attraction, which is Jesus' own resurrection. Him rising from the dead, securing as the reigning champion over sin and death. So let's read our text today. One thing you need to know about me, I love reading aloud the text of scripture, not afraid to read a longer passage so that we can see how the whole account unfolds. So let's read John chapter 11. I'm going to be reading from the New International Version and catch a picture here of what God is communicating to us through this account. So John 11 verses 1 through 44. Listen to this incredible story. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you and yet you want to go, you're going back? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. 
I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was, she saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But, but Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Whoa, what a story. What an account. This is the beautiful picture of Jesus and his raising of Lazarus. Now, friends, you have to remember, this is the defining moment of the Gospel of John. And everything from this moment turns towards the cross. It's the seventh miracle recorded by John. It's no accident that it's the seventh, the perfect number. And it's also the fifth I am statement. If you're familiar with the Gospel of John, there are seven I am statements where Jesus communicates the core of who he is. And these events become a controversy that drive the Jewish leaders to want to kill Jesus. And so the Apostle John, as he's writing this, he wants to see that the raising of Lazarus is a watershed moment when we are faced with the ultimate result of sin, which is death itself. We might wonder, as the people of this passage, does God know? Is he good? Does he care? Will he do something? So I want to walk you through this passage and show how Jesus answers each of these questions, revealing his ultimate mission to defeat sin and death by his own death and resurrection, ultimately pointing to our resurrection at the last day. 
So let's go through these questions. Look first here. Does he know? Verses 1 to 16. Okay, go back to verse 1. Look at your text with me. Verse 1, this account begins with a desperate plea for help. The sisters, Mary and Martha, they send word to Jesus, the miracle worker, and they say, the one you love is sick, help us. See, Jesus' friend, Lazarus, is deathly ill. I don't want you to miss a small piece here. Did you notice that Jesus had friends? Have you ever thought of that? Jesus cared deeply about this man, Lazarus. His sisters are in terrible fear for his life. And what does Jesus do? Look back at verse 4. When he heard this, look at the text, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, for it's, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Did you notice what's happening in this moment? Okay, there's two important observations we need to make. Okay, the first one is that the first thing Jesus says, the first words out of his mouth after this desperate plea for help is a promise. This sickness will not end in death. Hold on a second. Lazarus ends up dying. Did Jesus not know that that was going to happen? Oh, of course he would know that that's going to happen. So is Jesus mistaken? Is it, what does he mean by this? Because it, it must mean something more than that physical death that Lazarus experienced. So Jesus is describing how Lazarus' sickness and suffering will not ultimately end in death. That death is not the end of the story for Lazarus. That Jesus will ensure that death does not win the day. See, he's pointing to something greater. Okay, listen, dear friends. The sickness of sin will not win the day. Even when we sometimes wonder whether God sees our suffering or our struggles. Evil, even as we see the curse of sin and the presence of evil, the terrible pain and illness that we experience, the evil that we see across the world when you read the news, the ugly destruction of sin across history, it will not win the day. Jesus says plainly there is a purpose here. He says it is for God's glory that God's son may be glorified. It is, it's important to notice the wording here because it's not, it's not necessarily that God would receive glory and that evil somehow is a way of glorifying God, but that through that evil, God may be glorified as he redeems, as he raises Lazarus. This is why Lazarus is so sick. And Mary and Martha and the rest, they're struggling to kind of see the big picture here. It's so that God's glory would be displayed through that suffering and grief and ultimately through the raising of Lazarus. And friends, I just want to speak to your heart, to mine, when we experience these same things. The same goes for us. God's glory can be displayed through our difficulties and suffering and pain. Namely, because in Christ we have an eternal resurrection hope that far surpasses all of the pain and ex that we experience, the loss, the grief, the struggles, and sin. 
See, without these, without this hope, the struggles and griefs that we have, they would be unbearable. They would draw us away from the beautiful reality we have in Christ that through Christ, God gets the glory. So the first thing to observe is there's a promise, all right? The second thing is verses five and six show a really peculiar expression of love. Do you notice what Jesus says? Jesus loved, look at the text. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, and I want you to see that in the text there, that is a strong conjunction. It actually connects the two sentences with a result. So he loves them deeply so that when he, when he heard they were sick, when Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Why? His friend Lazarus is deathly ill. Why would he wait? Why would he wait two days? Friends, don't miss this. Jesus expresses his love for Lazarus and his sisters by delay. Just look at what Jesus says to his disciples when they question whether Jesus knows what he's talking about. Okay? He, the, later on, verse 11 they, they're kind of having this exchange with the disciples and they're wondering why he's delaying. And he says to them in verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm going there to wake him up. And you can see that they're confused by this reality. And he says to them plainly that Lazarus is dead. And that he says in verse 14, Lazarus, it says, or in 15, for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. This is the purpose of his delay is to foster faith and to clarify who he is as the Savior. It's not malicious. It's, it's for the good of everyone involved. Mary, Martha, the disciples, Lazarus himself. And we're going to see that as the rest of the story unfolds. And friends, the same goes for us. Often, our timing is not God's timing. Yet we sometimes ask, does God know? Does he, does he see? Does he understand? Does he know my struggles? And, and, and how in the world could this be an opportunity for God's glory? That the delay in my life, is that an expression of God's love? See, this is the promise of Jesus. Your grief, your failure, your struggle in your flesh your sickness, your inability, frankly, our inability to save ourselves. That these things are opportunities for God's glory to do, be displayed through his comfort, through his forgiveness, through his strength, through his redemption, through his forgiveness, through his promises as he raises us to new life. And and if you look across the scriptures, friends, it's like Abraham, like Joseph, like Ruth, like Esther, like Jeremiah, like Job. Your suffering is the very monument to God's kindness and mercy and grace. If we have the eyes of faith to see that God's delay does not mean he doesn't know. Okay, that's our first question. Does God know? Now, let's look at the second question here. Is he good? 
Go back to the story now. Okay, Jesus, this is verses 17 to 27. Jesus now nears the town of Bethany, which is less than two miles from Jerusalem. And Martha, ever busy Martha, heads out to find Jesus along the road. Now, I don't know about you, but I love Martha. She's one of my favorite people in the scriptures. Now, I bet that she was the older sister. Anybody um, an older sister or have an older sister? Okay, I do. I have an older sister, and uh, I picture Martha kind of like my older sister who likes to kind of come in and take charge and make sure things happen, and she hosts the family parties and cleans up afterwards and does all those things just like a big sister should, right? Now, this is, this is Martha and the picture we see of her because what she does is she doesn't wait for Jesus to get to where she is. She's like, I'm going out to go find him along the road. She finds Jesus and in verse 21 says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, we need to be careful to read this with the right kind of attitude or the right kind of uh, understanding of what she's saying. We need to be careful that, to, to not see this as a, a rude complaint or a, an accusation. It's more of a lament. She recognizes that Jesus could have done something. And she probably wonders why he didn't. And ultimately, this is a question of Jesus' goodness. We often think, and maybe you've had this thought run through your mind, if God has the power to prevent illness, if he's got the power to stop suffering, if he, if he could have the authority to end my pain, why doesn't he do it? If he has the power and he doesn't help me, is he good? But what Jesus does here at this moment with this question of Martha, he widens the perspective here because what he doesn't do is he doesn't give her a superficial platitude. Instead, he gives this declaration that the momentary pain that she's experiencing will be swallowed up in the ultimate purposes of Jesus and his redemptive work to bring about the renewal of all things. You see, friends, what we need to understand from this text, Jesus' goodness is not displayed in merely alleviating temporal difficulties on demand as though he were like a cosmic vending machine of pain medication. I plead with him and put my coin in and he helps comfort me when I want it. No, friends, his work is grander, more complete, going to the root of the problem. He's defeating death itself. Look at specifically what he says to Martha. Pick it up in verse 25 and 26. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Here's the I am statement. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? There's two parts to what he says to her. Each with a corresponding commentary. The first thing he says is, I am the resurrection. The one who believes in me will live, he says, even though they die. In other words, our natural death, when you know Jesus, 
when you trust in him as Savior and Lord, our natural death is not the end of the story. That's the first thing he says. The second is, I am the life. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Friends, this means that our resurrection life in Christ will go on forevermore. No more death. No more crying. No more pain. In the new heavens and new earth. Do you see what Jesus says at the end of this to Martha? The call to Martha is so profound. He declares these truths about who he is and what he's come to do. And he looks her straight in the eye and he says, do you believe this? Don't miss this, friends. The promise of resurrection life is to be received by faith. The only way to forgiveness and resurrection life is to trust in Jesus by faith. And Martha's response, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, there's a lot of confusion by even his own disciples and by all the people Jesus encounters about who he is. They don't understand yet who he is and what he's come to do. And here, Martha declares the most clear articulation of Jesus' identity yet in the Gospel of John. Maybe in all of the Gospels themselves. She says, yes, Lord, Verse 27, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. I want you to see, dear brothers and sisters, that it is the very circumstances of Lazarus' death that has engendered this bold response. Without Lazarus's illness and death, causing Martha to grapple with these deeper realities. Without the pain, the difficulty, the sorrow, the desire for Jesus to show his goodness in the face of death, Martha would not have come to this deep, deep understanding and trust and belief. And so, yes, when we encounter our failure, our sin, the reality of death. We can say Jesus is good. And it drives us to that deeper understanding. Let's look at the third question now. Does he care? Verses 28 to 37. Now, the story keeps moving along here, okay? Jesus now comes to the town of Bethany. He kind of finally makes his way into town. And Mary now comes out to meet him. Right? And she says the exact same thing her sister said. Now, maybe they were talking about it beforehand of, hey, how come Jesus isn't here yet? <laughs> Couldn't he have stopped this? You see, she, she now comes to say the same thing as her sister. And we now see in this moment the very heart of Jesus. Do you see one of the, the greatest challenges in the face of sin and suffering and loss is the question Does Jesus care? And when Jesus arrives, everyone else is weeping. You have to understand in the first century, outward mourning was part of first century Jewish cultural life. It was required in the Jewish laws that even a poor family was to at least hire two flute players 
and one professional wailing woman to make sure that the dead were honored with a public display. Didn't matter if you didn't have the money. Borrow the money. Sell your shirt. Go get rid of something. You had to hire at least two flute players and one person to cry. That was the rules. Now, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were not poor. And we know this from other parts of the Gospels. They were, in fact, really wealthy, fairly uh, wealthy and well-connected in Jerusalem. And so when Lazarus dies, they would have had an entire orchestra of mourners outside their front door. And when Jesus saw this crowd of people weeping, the text says in verse 33, that he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. This is one of the most profound moments in all of the scriptures. What what does this word deeply moved mean? In the secular Greek world, this word referred to the snorting of a horse when it's agitated. Anybody a horse person or enjoy horses? One of my, my daughters is 10 years old. She loves horses. She just went to horse camp at Camp Shamanaw, part of the Evangelical Free Church. And um, she has this dream that she's going to live in Wyoming and have a horse ranch and not have any cars. And she's going to ride her horse into town 10 miles each way every day. That's her kind of 10-year-old dream, right? This word deeply moved is the sound a horse makes as it snorts when it's agitated, right? And in, in this... In in the Greek world, when this word is applied to a human being, it suggests anger and outrage and indignation. And so, friends, for Jesus to be deeply moved in spirit meant that he was feeling an intense emotion of outrage or indignation, not merely sympathy. Imagine what is happening at this moment. Picture this, friends. They take Jesus to the tomb, and the text, as he looks upon that tomb, simply says, Jesus wept. Jesus looks upon the grave, and tears come rolling down the cheeks of the very Son of God. And friends, he's not merely crying at the loss of his friend out of, yes, I, he feels that sense of grief and loss and sympathy. But he knows that he's going to raise Lazarus in just a few moments. He does not cry tears of hopelessness at that loss. Rather, these are tears of lament and sorrow, and outrage at the existence of death itself. And Jesus is deeply moved by the pain that it causes the people that he loves. There's a a theologian named B.B. Warfield from the early 20th century. He wrote an essay called on the emotional life of our Lord. 
And in this essay, Warfield describes what's going on here in John 11. And this is what he says. He says, it would be impossible, therefore, for Jesus to stand in the presence of perceived wrong, indifferent or unmoved. Warfield says at this moment that when Jesus encounters the tomb of Lazarus, that compassion and indignation rise together in his soul. In other words, it would be a contradiction for Jesus to feel merely sad at the reality of death and not also in his holiness and power to feel a sense of outrage at the ugliness of death at the same moment. And as the very son of God and the author of life, he not only feels compassion for the bereaved but, and grief at the loss of his friend, but also he is indignant at the hideous effects of sin. Friends, let me encourage you. Jesus knows what grief feels like. Maybe you felt those same emotions. Deep sorrow. Mixed with a sense of indignation that death is wrong. That this isn't the way it's supposed to be. We should weep at this reality, at the, the loss, but also with the same indignation that this isn't right. That this is a tragedy. It's ugly. It's the fruit of sin. It's a loss that shouldn't be. It's troubling and it's against all that God intends. And so, friends, Jesus knows what your pain feels like and he cares. He cares so much that he will do something about it. Let's look at the last section of our text. Will he do something? Is the last question. Pick it up in verse 38. Okay, the text says that Jesus once again was deeply moved as he came to the tomb, and he says, take away the stone. Now, from Martha's response, it's still clear that she didn't quite understand what Jesus was going to do, that he was going to raise Lazarus right now. But why would she? I mean, put yourself in her shoes at this moment. This is an extraordinary event. And so she protests. She says, hold on a second. Lazarus has been dead for four days now. You don't want to open that door. Now, some commentators point out the significance of the four days, that it was commonly held uh, as a belief in first century Judaism that the soul would hover for three days above uh, a dead body and that only after the fourth day, when you were sure that the person was really dead, would the soul then depart to be with God. Once the spirit saw the body decomposing, something like that, that was what they believed. Now, you can imagine in the first century with a medical technology they have, it's possible someone could be unconscious for quite some time and then come back. And so after four days, what they say is that the person was really dead. Now, Jesus is maybe not necessarily agreeing with that belief, all right, or that way of thinking, but it's no accident that John mentions the four days here because even the most skeptical reader of his gospel in the first century wouldn't be able to say, well, you know what? He didn't really raise Lazarus. He was in a coma or, you know, he was just asleep. 
even the most skeptical reader would say, well, he was really dead. You see, this is why Martha protests. And I just love, it's kind of like the King James version. This is Martha's protest. She says, he stinketh. Isn't that the best way to put it? Now, Jesus reminds Martha of his ultimate purpose here in verse 40. He says, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? See, this is the theme of Jesus's prayer. As he rolls, as they roll away the stone, he says that, that the glory of God is displayed through suffering and pain and will bring about a genuine response of faith in Jesus Christ as our only Savior and Lord. So here's the moment of truth, okay? They roll away the stone. Now, friends, tombs in the first century, especially for wealthy families like Lazarus, they were often carved out of rock and they had multiple slots for the dead. Now, I took a picture. I I got a chance to visit Israel. You'll see it on the screen here. I got a chance to do a study tour a little over 10 years ago in Israel as part of my seminary experience. And we got to tour a tomb from the first century. And these are a couple of my friends. And you can see the different slots that would be in this underground tomb and families throughout the generations would be buried together. And so this tomb of the southern hills of Israel near Jerusalem would have been a similar tomb for a wealthy family like Lazarus. And so Jesus here calls out in a loud voice for a specific person, namely Lazarus. And some commentators have said that perhaps if he didn't call Lazarus by name, that every dead person in that tomb would have come out. But more importantly, this calling of Lazarus by name is an enacted parable of what is to come. If you trust in Jesus by faith, he will call you by name at the resurrection on the last day. He will awaken his sleepers the ones who belong to him, the ones he loves. And so if you've ever wondered, will Jesus do something about the pain and evil and sin in this world, he has promised to return to remove the curse of sin and death forevermore in the new heavens and new earth. The very one who shed tears of outrage at the curse of sin and death has triumphed in his own death and resurrection. And we, we await the glory of that day and that's pictured and promised in Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 through 4, when this becomes a reality. When it, the text says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. The one who wept at the reality of death will wipe away our tears so that tears will be no more. There will be no more death. 
or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Friends, in the meantime, trust in the goodness of Jesus. He knows. He is good. He cares. And he has achieved the ultimate destruction of death itself. Let's pray. Lord, what a distinct privilege to hear your very words in this text to encourage us today. We've sung about your power, that you're greater. We have seen how all will bend the knee to you. We know in the face and the reality of sin and death that We can sometimes ask questions like, do you even know or care? Are you good, Lord? What are you going to do? Lord, thank you that as we've celebrated communion this morning, these elements have reminded us that you have done something, the ultimate, to die in our place, to forgive us of our sin, to purchase and redeem us so that death would be no more, that we would have resurrection life in you. Jesus, you are our living hope. And so we want to sing that now. In Jesus' name, amen.